message. Uh, but as, as we think about being a man in the mirror, maybe if, if Brandon spent more time as a man in the mirror, he'd have a beach body, right? No. <laughs> Actually, that book is all about uh, not, not bodily discipline, but godly discipline. So we, we encourage you. In fact, uh, Brandon's going to be reading that book this week, and he'll give you a book report personally all about that. Anyway, God is good, isn't he? All right. Well, this morning we're going to be talking about uh, what God says to us out of his word. And as we think about that, I was this past week, I was looking at an article that someone had sent me, and it was 50 things a father ought to say to his children. And I thought that might be a little bit long in terms of points, 50 points in a message, so I just thought I'd begin by giving you one of them. One of the points is that you ought to tell your children that you deeply love them. But you ought to tell them not only do you deeply love uh, them as far as being your children, but that you love their wife, your wife more. And, and, that, and that is really a key thing. If you want to be the best father, then you want to be the best husband first. That you really need to, to focus on that relationship that God has given you that brought those children to you. Uh, this past week, I was also uh, looking at an article that was uh, kind of the relationship between the husband and the wife, and, and this is how the story went. Although this married couple enjoyed their uh, life together, they had decided to buy a fishing boat. And they enjoyed this fishing boat uh, immensely, and it was the husband who was always behind the wheel operating the boat. But he was concerned about what might happen in an emergency. So one day, out on the lake, he said to his wife, Honey, take the wheel. Pretend that I'm having a heart attack, and you must get the boat safely to shore and dock it. So she drove the boat to shore and safely docked it. Later that evening, the wife walked into the living room where her husband was, was watching sports on TV. She sat down next to him, switched the TV channel, and said to him, Honey, go into the kitchen. Pretend I'm having a heart attack. Set the table, cook dinner, and wash the dishes. <laughs> now that's true love, isn't it? All right. Well, this morning we want to talk about lessons on fatherhood, but really more lessons on life. And if uh, you'll take your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 4. And actually, this, uh, this section here really begins, like a lot of things begin in life, really the book of Genesis is the book of beginnings, and it begins with the universe coming into being, we have life starting, we have the creation of man, both uh, male and female are brought into this world, we recognize that God institutes marriage as he brings those two together, and, and then uh, we see some things happening that we wish didn't start, we have the beginning of sin, and we have the destruction that relates to that, the fall of creation as well. And then as we hit Genesis chapter 4, we still have things that begin. We have the beginning of family. And then we have the beginning of, you call it sibling rivalry between Cain and Abel. And then we have some things a little even darker in terms of nature. We have, we have the beginning of the, of the first murder. And then we have the beginning of, of the, 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 the desecration of marriage. This polygamy begins even from the very beginning. If, if Satan wants to win in the lives of people who have known about God, he can destroy them individually, and then he can destroy them in the home. And we see that all being birthed at the beginning of, of God's revelation to us in the book of Genesis. And this morning, we really also have the announcement of the beginning of fatherhood. But this morning, hopefully, you'll, you'll see the application for us all as we see lessons on uh, what it means to, to be a father, but also what it means uh, to really live with God and for God. And so we're going to begin by looking at a few uh, kind of theological points, and then we're going to see the story unfold for us as we learn lessons on life. 
Uh, first of all, we need to look at, as we think about any time we encounter God's Word, it's not only a book in which God is giving us lessons for us to live, not only practical points to live a more principled life or a more powerful life or purposeful life. It really is a book in which we want to discover God. It all really begins with God knowing Him a little bit more deeply and really understanding just how uh, He is and how He relates to those whom He has made. And so I want to make an initial statement about uh, lessons on fatherhood as it relates to God, our Father. And I want to make this point. Our Heavenly Father became a father. He has always been God when he made man. So if you have Genesis chapter 4, just turn over a little bit and let's look at Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. God has always been, always will be, and is obviously existing to now, in the now uh, at this very moment. And he has always been a triune God. He's been, uh, there's been three persons within the Trinity. But God has revealed to us later on in Revelation some designations for him. Uh, we know uh, him having a son, and we call him Jesus, the Son of God. We are a reference to the Holy Spirit as being part of the triune God. And then most of the time when we speak of God, we speak of him being our what kind of father? Our heavenly father. But I would say that the experience of him having that role of being a father is when everyone has that role. When a man becomes a father, he has his children. And so we see this in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image. So it was the triune God involved in this, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in, in, in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, which speaks about... The plan of God from the very beginning was to establish not only marriage, but family, both fathers and mothers, because it was in God's will for them to bring children and populate this earth. Fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over the the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So what's so significant about our, our, our God becoming a father? Well, can I make this a very, very simple point? And I hope this really connects with how we live. That we ought to take comfort that God sympathizes with us. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, it says, uh, particularly in reference to Jesus, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. And you can actually translate that word tempted as tested. He was tested in all things, and yet he did not fail the test. And the emphasis I want to just share with him at the very beginning is we think about family. And whether you are a father or mother this morning, all of us are birthed into some kind of family. It could be a dysfunctional family. It could be a, a family that's so filled with, with joy and love that you just rejoice all the time about being with brothers and sisters or with your parents. All of us have a family. And it can be the greatest blessing in life, and sometimes it can be the greatest trial. But what I want to just communicate to all of us is that we can take comfort that God understands. He understands family because He is family. He is the head of this family. He is, he is our Heavenly Father. And it doesn't take much for us to get through God's revelation to realize that, that they're a large part of God's family, to use today's you know, 
label is are dysfunctional, that have fallen into sin, that, that break the heart of the parents more than bring joy to the parents. And so as we go through life, recognize that, that God understands. It is always a challenge any time you, you speak about the family. You recognize that people come with all kinds of experiences as they come into a place like this. And some, as you think about the fatherhood of God, that brings them great pain rather than great joy. How can I, how can I believe in a, in a God who is known as a father when my father did so many things to hurt me? And I feel more like a victim than a child in the home. But we need to recognize that, that God understands that. That God has all kinds of his children doing all kinds of things. And so God can sympathize with us. And he sent his son even to live here on this planet so that we could recognize that it's not some God way out there that, that started this clock, wound it up, and now just put it on the shelf and allowing it to go all on his own. That God is intimately aware and can sympathize with everything that we go through. So take comfort in that. Secondly, our Heavenly Father, who is perfect, raised his, church, his children in a perfect environment and they still disobeyed. Uh, let's look at a couple of references. Again, he, he created us and planted us in a perfect environment. Genesis chapter 1, verse 31. Uh, then God saw everything that he had made. And indeed, it was very good. And so the evening and the morning were the sixth day. And, and then God decided, hey, I'm just going to give them one simple test as far as them to show uh, their faithfulness to me and to trust in my goodness and that I have a plan for their life that, that they need to follow. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Only one thing that they had to remember. Only one thing they weren't supposed to get involved with. But then we know the story in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, it was attracted uh, to her physically. For it was pleasant to her eyes, it was attracted to her visually. And a tree desirable to make one wise, it was attractable to her intellectually. She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Now, just think about that for a moment. Here was the first you know, family with God, the Heavenly Father, being the head of the family. He, he places his children in a, not just a good environment, but a perfect environment. And, and there weren't a whole lot of rules. There was only one rule. They had all the freedom for, for, of life to enjoy. He was the perfect parent in a perfect environment. And they chose to disobey they chose to rebel against an all-good God. Well, if we can take comfort that God can sympathize with us as, as we live in families, both healthy families and unhealthy families, we, we need to recognize this. A very just simple point I want to make this morning is that we need to quit putting all the blame on our parents, or this morning, if you're a parent, quit putting all the blame on yourself as a parent. We, we, uh, they call them... Uh, yeah, helicopter parent, parenting now, I mean, where, where parents, they want to do everything to make their kids turn out perfect. And they're hovering over them all the time. Now, I, I think we ought to be loving our kids, uh, and we ought to be providing for our kids, we ought to be willing to make any sacrifice for our kids, 
But let me tell you, I don't care how good a parent you are. It's not going to ensure that your child will make every right choice. And it's not creating the perfect environment. It's not trying to make you the perfect parent. Because they can choose to obey you or to disobey you. Now, now while they're in your home, you can put the parameters around that where they experience consequences for their actions and, and they learn that certain things aren't rewarded and other things are rewarded. But as we stand, each one of us, before a holy God at the end of our life, we are not going to be able to point fingers at anybody on this planet for how we turned out. Now, there are some things that people can do that can damage you physically, and they can, they can challenge you emotionally. They can do a lot of things that can be destructive. But you will turn out how you choose to turn out, whether you turn to God or you turn away from God. And if that was true in the very beginning, it's true now as well. And so you need, to, you need to quit throwing the blame game. And we saw that in Genesis chapter 3 when Eve uh, ate of the fruit and when Adam ate of the fruit, Adam wanted to throw uh, the blame on Eve and Eve wanted to throw the blame on the devil. You know, the devil made me do it. As we look at our lives, we need to recognize that we're going to be personally accountable to God for what we do. Look at what Exodus 18 verse 20 says. The, the soul who sins shall die. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. Which simply says this. You're, you're going you're gonna to be held accountable for your choices. And there, there, is, there is within our American culture now a, a blame game going on in so many ways. And there are some reasons for that in terms of the abuse of people to people. But we need to get off that. We need to recognize what things can be prevented and what things cannot be prevented, where help can be administered to and where help cannot be administered to. But we need to recognize that we are responsible for our own choices. And then we need to think about that. God is the great healer. He is not only one who can forgive us, but even in a greater way, He can heal the emotional pain and the trauma that we've gone through. He can, he can take that which has been messed up and turn it into that which is good. We're going to see that in a lot of the individuals that we'll see in the book of Genesis, where sometimes the, the, the actions of others have meant it for evil, but God can turn it and make it for what? Good. And that's what it means to walk by faith, believing that God can take that which is a mess and make it over. So what, we should, what some lessons on life, even as we look at fatherhood, our Heavenly Father, is take comfort that our Heavenly Father understands us and what we're going through. Secondly, quit playing the blame game and, and, and take, take ownership for the choices that you can make. Thirdly, there was a point in which our God became a heavenly father when he had children. There, there came a place when Adam became a father and he became a father, see if you're listening, when he had what? Children. And that comes in the story from Genesis chapter 4. Adam became an earthly father when he and Eve brought Cain and Abel into this world. Look at Genesis chapter 4 and we'll start the story. 
Now, Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. You know, stopping there just for a moment. It's interesting, as that first child came into uh, their life, they recognized it was a gift from who? God. And we need to recognize there is no such thing as illegitimate children. There can be at times illegitimate parents, parents who made wrong choices, but every child that comes out of the womb is a gift from God. And that's how, that's how Eve saw that first child. And we're going to hear the rest of the story about how Cain turned out. But she recognized this was something that God brought into their family. It was from the Lord. And it's interesting, it uh, came from the Lord. That's, the, that's that personal covenant name of God. It, it's, uh, I acquired a man from Yahweh. But I want to back up here for a moment. As we think about how, very basic this morning, nothing super profound, is that, is that a father, and a potential father and a potential mother, a husband and a, a wife have children when they get to know each other. Okay? Now, when he's talking about knowing each other, we're not talking about their, their names. We're not talking about their social security numbers. That's when they... The two become one. And from the very beginning, God is the creator of sex. God is the creator of that which brings two lies, both the male and the female, together in, in, in union, and it produces life. And it should be not only a place where it fulfills the commandment, you know, uh, be fruitful and multiply the earth. There are other places in the, in the book of Genesis and Exodus where it talks about the, the husband having sport with his wife. It's something that ought to be enjoyed. And it's the idea of knowing, knowing that person intimately, knowing that person in ways that no one hopefully else has ever known that other person. And if that's ever happened, then God can bring that joy back as well. And that's throughout Scripture. Look at Proverbs chapter 5, verses 18 through 20. It says this, Be excited, with well, a point I want to make, be excited about getting to know your wife. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of your youth. As a loving deer and a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times and always be enraptured with her love. For why should you, my son, be enraptured by an immoral woman and be embraced in the arms of a seductress? See, there, there are other ways to experience what God has gifted both man and woman, sex, in a way that will bring partial joy. It will bring physical enjoyment, but it will miss what God had from the very beginning put together. Because it wasn't just a matter of experiencing something physically. It was something to experience emotionally, psychologically, spiritually. Having an in-depth relationship with that person that you're going to live the rest of your life with. And sometimes places like this, we spend so much time talking about when not to have sex that we kind of communicate you shouldn't have sex at all. But the idea is you ought to have sex in the place that God has, has created for you to most enjoy. So you might know His perfect plan for your life. That, that as, as, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, you, you come to that place where you recognize that, that your body is not your own, it's your partner's body. And the same as they look at their body, they recognize it's not their body anymore, it's their partner's body. Where you recognize you've become one and you, you do everything as, as a couple together. That you have a, a common message to communicate, that you are committed to each other. That's what God had, had brought together from the very beginning. And that's why that is so profound to think that the, the best thing you can do for your children 
is to love your spouse. To, to recognize that's the commitment that is the bond that keeps that family together. And, and we need to do everything that we can to, to communicate that message that this is God's plan. And this is where life's greatest joy comes from. Have you ever, have you ever been to a, um, to a wedding or the, and... And, you know, they, they begin the preparation for it, and everyone's so excited about the wedding, you know, happening and, and uh, all the plans for it. And, and the closer the day comes, the people start getting tireder and tireder. There, there's more things they're doing, all the expectations. And I was at a recent wedding, and, and this it wasn't just me being subjective, interpretive, intu- intuitive. Uh, half the wedding party was just waiting for it to be over. The, the joy had been sucked out of that celebration because they had so many things to do and not enough time to do it. And you know, that happens sometimes at the point of the union between a man and a woman. And sometimes that happens afterwards as well. That we, we can clutter our life up with so many things. And, and we miss the point that what God wants to happen in the family is the family know each other. And he uses that word, it's yada in the Hebrew, so that we recognize that the physical union is, a, is an expression of, I want to know you deeply. And it begins with that relationship between the husband and the wife as we think of the role of being a father and a mother to the children. But, but let's continue on, just making simple observations out of, out of Genesis chapter 4. Fourthly, Adam was probably a faithful father, as far as we know, that as God restored that relationship with him as they fell into sin. And this is not in the text, but I I really am convinced this is true. Adam was probably a faithful father who taught his sons to trust and obey God. One chose to disobey God, and one chose to obey God. Here we have that, that, that... that sobering story of what happened between Cain and Abel. And let's, let's read the account in Genesis chapter 4. There was great joy when life was brought into the home. And then the story unfolds. Then she bore again, this time, verse 2, his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground of the Lord and also brought to the firstborn of his flock. Abel brought also to the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. Now, stopping there just for a moment. The, the reason I say I, I, I'm convinced that, that Adam was a faithful father teaching his children, Cain and Abel, because... They brought an offering to the Lord. How did they know that? The only way they could have known that was for Adam and Eve to communicate that to their sons. And so there came the point when they were taking responsibility for their own spiritual lives. Probably there was family offerings when they were, they were young, as they were children. Then they came to the point that they were to take charge of their own faith. And so they came to that point where they approached God. And they approached God in the way that God had communicated to Adam to communicate to his sons that they were to bring an offering of of sacrifice and commitment to him. And then there came that point where there was a point of of God either approving or disapproving that which was brought to him. 
And, and what we have is that Abel brought an excellent offering. As you look at uh, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, he brought a more excellent offering than Cain, his brother, did. And at that response of God to the two offerings, Cain responded... Uh, not with repentance or confession and saying, let me, let me come back and do a new offering. He comes very angry and his countenance falls. Now, what I want to stop here just for a moment before we look at, again, the response of Cain. Is this is a, a simple illustration of the role, again, of lessons of life for the father. We are to, to take responsibility to teach what we know about God to our children. Now... We are only responsible to teach to our children what we know about God. And so don't compare yourself with others, but take what you do know and communicate what you do know. And then, of course, the challenge is continue to know more and more about your God so you can communicate more and more about God to your children. Now, there are two ways we do this. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, it says this. Teach, uh, or the point I want to make is teach people to follow God by example and with words. And I get that from the statement in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. The two words are training and admonition really speak of two things. One, th- one word has the idea of, of, of training verbally, and the other has the idea by training by way of an example. And both are so important. We've all heard that, that phrase, you know, you, your actions speak so much, I can't hear your words. And so if, we, if we're going to ask our children to, to know God, then we need to set the example of, of us knowing God deeply. If we want them to fall in certain steps in terms of their lifestyle, in terms of how they approach God and how they live among other people, we need to set that example. And so we need to live it out, but we also need to speak it out. And so Adam had done that with both Cain and Abel. And whether Cain wasn't taking enough notes on that day when he talked about offerings or he hadn't gotten to that lesson in the lesson plan, they came to that point when they gave their offering to God, God accepted the offering of Abel and did not accept the offering of Cain. Now, we're going to look at in a moment why that was so, but let, let's move on in the story. The fifth principle I want us to look at. Our Heavenly Father is gracious no matter how much we mess up, but we must come to Him on His terms. And, of course, that ought to be true in relationship to our relationship as fathers to our own children. We ought to always be gracious, but we should never change the standards about what is right and what is wrong. Why did God not accept Cain's offering? But let me look at, first of all, how gracious God was. Look at verse 6. So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? Now, again, whenever God asks a question, he's not looking for information. He's trying to make a point, a statement. Now, he knew what was in the heart of Cain, but he wanted Cain to recognize what was going on in his heart. But then what he did is he tried to point him to the goodness of God. Because at that moment, and normally what happens when when you discipline your children, whether it be verbally or in some uh, physical way, I remember, you know, my parents used to say this right before they would discipline me. Uh, that only happened once, you know, in my life. But, but uh, you know, this is going to hurt me more than it's going to what? Hurt you. I had a hard time believing that until I became a parent, all right? And at that point, Cain was only looking at the displeasure of the Heavenly Father. 
But God comes back graciously to him in verse 6. He says, if you do well, will, not, will you not be accepted? He said, look it. All right, you messed up. Okay, you have failed. But failing doesn't necessarily make you a failure. Just like a singular loss does not make you a loser. The issue is, do you stay in that lost position? Do you stay in that failed position? You say, okay, you did not bring the right offering. You messed up. But if you now choose to do what is right, that will deal with that which was wrong. But you have another option. You, you can choose to do what is right. And graciously, I will accept your offer and you will be fully accepted. This does not have to affect our relationship. You can be fully loved and embraced. But then he says this, and if you do not do well, sin lies at the door and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Now, there's like a, almost a whole series of messages you could just take on that last phrase. There are things all around us that are trying to draw us into what the Bible calls sin. It, it, there are all kinds of things around us that, that the world and the evil one wants to draw us into destructive behavior. There's all kinds of things that God wants us to do to blow up relationships. And he said, you have a choice. You don't have to go down that path. And just because you desire it deeply, you can choose by God's strength to rule over that which draws you into sin. But it's your choice. You are going to be held accountable either to turn from your ways and turn to me or to continue down the path that only leads to heartache and pain and consequences. Why, why, didn't, why didn't God accept Cain's offering? Well, if you go back to the text just for a moment, look at uh, Genesis chapter 4, verse 3. And it came in the process of time, that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. And Abel, verse 4, also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. I think right there you see two things. What happened to Cain is he, is he came to God in the wrong way with the wrong offering. Now, as we come into a place of worship, or when we even come into the presence of God for our own prayer time, as we look at, at coming into a life group to study God's Word, as we, as we think about just living life at where we live, in our neighborhood, or at our place of employment, or at school, you know, as we seek to, to follow after God, we, we, we can fail miserably if we go in the wrong way and doing the wrong things. Now, how did he do it in the wrong way? Well, if you look at the description of, of Abel's offering, he came and he brought the firstborn of the flock. He, he gave that which was first and also that which was best. When you look at the fruit of the offering that, that Cain gave, there, there's, no, there's no description of it. He just brought an offering from that which he had raised in the ground. Now, I'm not, I'm not exactly the best gardener. You know, I've tried to plant a number of different things. Uh, but when you plant a, a variety of plants and, and they begin to bear fruit, whether it's tomatoes or whether it's squash or corn or beans or fruit or whatever it might be, if you've ever if you ever looked at, you know, some are a little bit better than others. Have you noticed that? You know, some, you know, man, you just look like you'd eat it right off the vine or you could eat it right, you pull it out of the ground. And others you go, this is for, 
This is for Brandon. I'm going to take it to Brandon if he wants it, all right? Is that you recognize that these are the ones I'm going to take to church and say anybody wants them. You know, no. But is, as far as we know, he just brought whatever he wanted and just threw it on the cart and said, hey, God, this is yours. It wasn't his best. Now, let's, let's be honest. Most of us are, are not going to be the best at anything. But we can give God our best. And we have, have probably implied here is that when Cain came to give an offering to God, it was, it was his leftovers. It wasn't the very best that he had. So he came to God in the wrong way. God only wants our best. You know, the, the statement that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 22 are recorded for us. Uh, Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with most of your heart and with most of your soul and with most of your mind. Is that what he said there? He said, you need to love the Lord God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Sometimes we wonder, why don't I experience the presence of God in my life? Why don't I experience that joy when everything's going, not right, but everything's going wrong because you haven't given everything you have to God. You have a casual relationship with God and you want God to come through in a mighty way when you hardly know him. God wants our best. Colossians 3.23 says this, And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. Did you, uh, did you hear that, that uh, commencement speech that kind of went viral recently? And, and the, he was actually a teacher, and he came and said, I, I don't I want to let you know that none of you out there are special. You know, most of you are not going to accomplish anything significant in life. And I want you to recognize you've been, you've been given trophies when you, since you've been a little kid in Little League. And, and let me tell you, if everyone gets trophies, those trophies don't what? They don't mean anything. And I thought, man, that, that's kind of a bold commitment. You normally get to pump, you know, the pump them up and tell everybody you're going to be great and awesome. And he said, look it, if, if you're one in a million, if you're one in a million, you know what that works out to be? But 6.8 billion people in this world, that means you're, you're uh, one in 7,000. I mean, there's 7,000 people just like you. So you're not unique. You're not special. But you know what makes you special? God does. Because if you're part of God's family and you're doing your best for God, that is eternal. And as he was talking to Cain, Cain, all right, you brought... You, you came to me the wrong way. Well, just turn around and come to me the right way. Give me your all. But not only did he come the wrong way, he, he, he came with the wrong thing. He came with the wrong offering. You know, when, when Adam and Eve sinned, they, they tried to cover up their sin by sowing fig leaves. God says, that's, that's, that's not good enough. And so he killed an animal and he clothed them with the skins that he had provided. And from that very beginning, God set that pattern. As, as we think about the covering for our sin, it's going to require a blood sacrifice. And so Abel, whenever that lesson on what to bring God was given by Adam, he was listening, taking notes, and said, this has got to be a blood sacrifice. And Cain was dozing off and said, I can give God whatever I want. This is what's convenient for me, and so that's what I'll bring. 
In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, that whole section is good to read. But, and according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. And you could add that, the remission of sin. And there are going to be many people, when they, when they come and stand before God, and they're going to think, you know, God, you're going to accept me because I've played the comparative game. I've, I've given the, the, the exam, and I've looked at my life compared to everybody else's life, and, you know, I measure up a lot better than most people. And God says, there's only one way to have your sins dealt with. And that's for Jesus to die on the cross for your sins. And unless you appropriate that, unless that blood is applied to you, you are still in your sins. You know, the, sin had, the, the, the shirt has stripes. But let's say it was, a, it, was a, it was a white shirt here. But right before I came up here, I was, I was playing with a fountain pen. Did anybody ever use fountain pens? I remember when I was school, we still had fountain pens. But let's, those ones like liquid ink in it, all right? But let, let's say all of a sudden I was, I was writing some notes on, you know, last notes for the message, and all of a sudden uh, uh, the pen broke and there was a spot right here. And I said, I don't think anybody will notice. I'll just come out there and whatever. You know, if I wear a tie in the second service and there's some characters on it, the whole, the whole service, people say, I was trying to figure out who that was on your tie. You know, you know we don't see what God sees. And, and that was Cain's problem. He didn't recognize that, that he needed his sins to be covered. And he wanted to go his own way. He came to God in the wrong way with the wrong offering. We should never come to God in the wrong way and without recognizing He has made the right offering that we need to put our faith in. This week in your life groups is our last week uh, before the, the summer break. We're going to have you look at the whole issue of anger. And, and how, what does God say about when we get consumed by our anger? Someone said that, that people basically get angry for three reasons. One, one, because they get hurt, because they're afraid, or they're totally frustrated. And, and at this point, you know, Cain was hurt probably. I mean, here his here is younger brother got it right and he got it wrong. He didn't like that too well. He was frustrated because, you know, he, he works with animals. I don't. I just gave you the fruit of my labor. And I said, that's fine, but you, you could have gotten an animal and sacrifice for me. In fact, I'm just telling you, just do it again. And, and maybe he was just, he was afraid what everybody else would think if somehow he just confessed his sin. He was, he was concerned about everybody else. There comes a point where each one of us have to come before God and, and openly respond to our sin and confess it before him. Real quickly, the story continues. Our Heavenly Father knows that one sin leads to another with a variety of consequences. Back to Genesis chapter 4. Verse 8. Now Cain talked with Abel, his, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Then the Lord said to Abel, said Cain, where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, well, what have you done? And of course, again, God knows the answers to every one of these questions. He knew that Cain had brought Abel into the, the place where he could kill him. 
The voice of your brother cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed from the earth. Who has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand? Then you till the ground. It shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond, you shall be on the earth. And then Cain said, my punishment is too great. And God graciously allows protection to be upon him. See, the first sin was his sin against God. He came to God in the wrong way with the wrong offering. But that led to another sin. To the point where he killed his only brother. Now, we know when Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 that, that we, we commit murder all the time when we, when we have rage in our heart toward another. And God wants us to know that when we don't deal with our sin before Him, it will lead to other sin. And the consequences will be great. But on this fatherhood day, I want to show this out very, very plainly. That as we think about the role of father, we're not going to be perfect fathers. All of our children will not necessarily fall after God's plan. But we can decide what kind of legacy we're going to give. Some fathers will leave a godly legacy and some will not. You know, picking up the stories, we look at the children of Cain, and then we look at the children of, of Seth. Look at verse 19. Then Lamech, who was a child of Cain, took for himself two wives. The name of one was Ada, and the name of the second was Zillah. And so we have polygamy coming through the line of Cain. And at, at, Abdad bore Jabal, and, and he was the father of those who dwell in the tents and have livestock. His, his brother's name was Jabal. He was the father of all those who play the harp and flute. And Azilla, she also bore Tubal Cain, an instructor of every craftsman in bronze and iron. And the sister of Tubal Cain was Namath. Then Lamech said to his wives, Adel and Zillah, hear my voice. Wives of Lamech, listen to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me even a young man for hurting me. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. What kind of line did Cain produce? He, he, he produced a line in which they were very productive. They were craftsmen. They were, they were musicians. They had livestock. They were very productive. But he also produced a line that brought polygamy into, into the world that God had created. He brought in a bitter, bitter man and said, I'm not just going to get even when someone hurts me. I'll get them even better. If they, if they touch me, I'll kill them. But there was another legacy. Look at verses 25 to the end of this chapter. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and named him Seth. For God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel, whom Cain killed. And as for Seth, to him also a son was born, and, the name, and he named him Enosh. And this is the phrase I want you to leave with. Then men began to call on the name of the Lord. As far as we know, when Cain killed Abel, and Cain began to multiply and fill his part of the earth, his family prospered in so many different ways, but they were far from God. Then God brought another child in the the family of Adam and Eve. And this child's name was Seth. And it doesn't mean that every child out of Seth's line walked with God. But that line got marked as the family that brought the name of the Lord in the conversation again. What kind of legacy are we going to leave? 
how are we influencing the people around us? Are people closer to God because time is spent with us? Do they think more about God because of how we live and what we speak about? Or is our faith distant, so distant that they, they could see us maybe being skillful in so many ways, but never aware that our lives wholeheartedly are to be given to God? What kind of legacy are we leaving? Let's pray. Father, this morning I want, I want us to leave comforted that you understand what we're going through. I want us to, to feel encouraged that we don't have to play the blame game with those around us. Uh, Father, I want us to, to, to recognize that, that you have given us the blessing of, of, uh, of being in union in a, a physical way with husband and wife. And, and Father, I just want to praise you for the, the challenge for us to, to give, come to you in the right way with the right offering to you. And Father, I also pray that each one of us might desire to leave a legacy. A a legacy not only in terms of of being a father or a mother in the home, but being a friend that really cares deeply about what's most important in the lives of people that we know. Help us to be the kind of people that bring up the conversation of the Lord as we live life. And we praise in Christ's name. Amen.